You're listening to The Sound of Pursuit. I'm Hal Humphreys. I am John Nardizzi. John, man, it's been way too long. How you doing? I'm doing great. Good. I'm from Chicago. What'd you go to Chicago for? I went with one of my clients, Victor Rosario, to celebrate his uh, multi-million dollar judgment. You got a wrongful that. conviction. You got a special that. special week. That is yeah. that is awesome. Well, um, you know, we have um, been a little bit remiss in getting this done in a timely fashion, but we're back today. And um, one of the things that you and I have talked about discussing for quite some time is how to work with attorneys and, and what attorneys are looking for and what we can and cannot do. Yeah, exactly. And there's a perfect lead in. We're calling this the rules of the game. Uh, what as a lawyer, what do lawyers expect the investigator to know about certain rules of professional conduct? Do they apply to the investigator? Uh, the big areas, attorney, client, work product privilege, but there's other things out there as well that you need to know about. And so today we have a very special guest, Jennifer Sunderland. She's a friend and a client. She's a great attorney from Boston who does criminal defense, does workplace cases, business litigation and parties with me on the beach. <laughs> and we're going to talk about some of these topics with Jen Sunderland today. Jennifer, Welcome. thank you for taking the time to be here with us today. Thank you for inviting me. So Jen, one of the questions that sometimes I hear being talked about with other investigators is um, attorney-client privilege. What does that cover? Is that a distinct privilege from work product, which is we always think about as our written reports? Can you mm -hmm. kind of go into those two? Sure. So um, I could explain it sort of the way I explain to my clients um, is that any conversations that they and I, that my client and I have are protected by attorney client privilege. And that is sort of separate from what I consider to be my ethical obligations as an attorney, which includes a duty of confidentiality. A privilege is grounded in the rules of evidence, right? So if there is a conversation that I have with my client, nobody can force either of us to talk about what we talked about in that meeting. Okay. The court can't, the police can't. And I, you know, I often say this to clients really because you want your clients, you know, the basis for the privilege is so that your clients will feel comfortable being totally forthright with you and will give you all of the information as opposed to omitting information because they think that there's a chance that you're going to say something to somebody else about it. Um, right, so let me just jump in there. So let's say you and I have worked together and we're both sitting in a meeting. We understand that's that conversation would be protected, right? I'm, mm -hmm. My presence doesn't destroy that privilege because I'm working as your agent. What if, what if an investigator gets sent to a prison to interview the client without you being there? Is there any different analysis? Uh, I mean, I'm not sure that that trying to decide if that would be considered privileged. Um, really, I know I some, think about this. No, that's okay. Side. Cause I, it's an interesting area because I think there's some debate about that, that some attorneys believe that it's okay. And the investigator will be covered because we're working for you as the agent. Right. I've heard other people say you, there might need to be some disclosure. Mm -hmm. in writing to the client that, that that's the case. So it's just something to, um, I it, think, is, and I think I would say, 
you know, as a, I'm a sort of generally risk averse person when it comes to those sorts of things, right? So if there was something that I, I mean, I can think of very few circumstances where I would want an investigator to speak to my client if I wasn't also present. Yeah. Um, and so when I, when I am present, when the three of us are present with the client, or if it's, you know, an investigator, me and the client, the privilege protects that conversation because the investigator is there acting as an agent of the, of the lawyer. Um, and, you know, okay. I do tell clients, you know, the other thing I tell them is like, sure, your, your mom, wife, sister, whoever can be in on this interview, but having someone else there destroys the privilege. Yeah. Um, obviously that doesn't count when it's an agent of the defense. So um, I think that's a good question about what would happen if you went to see a client. Um, and I suppose just to be cautious, I always want to err on the side of making sure that it was protected by making sure that I was there. Right. And how she just raised a good point because uh, you've seen this before, I'm sure, where you're speaking with a client and an attorney and family members are there. Mm -hmm. how, how have you seen that handled in your with your cases? Um, usually when that situation comes up at some point, when we start talking about the meat of the case, um, the attorney will say, Hey, um, mom, dad, thank you for being here. Thank you for paying for your son's defense. You got to leave the room. Yeah. 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 That's probably the best practice. And I think Jen, you've done similar conversations yeah, with, family, right. with family, very, well, very gently given that they're paying for the case, yeah. but. You know. Yeah, no, you say like, it's, it's great that you're here. Thank you for being so supportive. And you, you know, I think usually people understand that um, yeah. it does get, it does get a little bit tricky. Now I, I will, I will jump in real quick and say, I have had attorneys that I work with will send me to, um, to a county lockup to a, a local jail to talk to the client on my own in a, a legal interview room. Um, and they have, made the argument that I'm an agent of the attorney. They have talked to the client about that and they tend to think that that is protected conversation. Um, if I'm acting as an agent, it has never been tested. Um, and the other interesting thing, like if you're, if you're working on a civil case, the rules of discovery are completely different. And from my layman's point of view on a criminal case, I mean, if, if a DA were to push to get the contents of a conversation I had with a client, most of the time I think a judge would say, yeah, he's an agent. I, I think they would fall on the side of the attorney, the criminal defense attorney. I would certainly hope so, right? Um, and I think it's hard to really see how practically speaking that would manifest, although I, I wouldn't put it past some prosecutors. I mean, I, I've, I've certainly dealt with, with some prosecutors who I think um, would try something like that. <laughs> well, I mean, just real yeah. quick, quick example. I'm on, I'm on this, actually, I'm not even on the stand. The attorney is cross-examining a witness and he reaches over and grabs my investigator's notebook and holds it up when he's talking to the witness and the DA says, Your Honor, we need that in evidence. Like he, he felt like the attorney had exposed it to being drawn into evidence. And the judge immediately said, yeah, no, we're not doing that. But the DA, I mean, some DAs will try anything they can to get, you know, at privileged con conversations. 
Right. And I, I think this kind of comes up in the context of like, do you write everything down? Do you give yeah. a report as an investigator, right? That's almost always a conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and this is a great segue into the kind of the next point is, you know, work mm-hmm. product and, and written reports. So maybe we can talk about that because, uh, you know, Hal's given the example of written notes and a overly aggressive DA holding up the notes like this might be, I think I need this, it's discoverable. And if it's just also just a jury tactic to maybe suggest that there's something uh, sinister about the fact that the investigator took notes and they were turned over. But Jen, maybe we can talk about in Massachusetts kind of how we handle witness interviews with witnesses that we're going to use versus not use written reports Mm -hmm. versus oral reports. Can you kind of go into that broad topic a little bit? Sure. So I came up through, I was trained in the public defender's office here in Massachusetts. And we had like, I'm sure other public defenders office, we had staff investigators. And there was a period of time where our investigator did a report every time. But the DA's office at some point, I think in the county where I worked, got wind of that. So they started filing discovery motions for reports. And look, the rules of discovery legally in state court in Massachusetts permit and allow for some reciprocal discovery, meaning you have some discovery obligations as a defense attorney, you don't have zero obligations. Um, But the way that we ended up addressing that was don't take notes or make a report until I ask you to, Mm -hmm. or you can take notes, but then let's have a conversation about it because the conversation with the, with the investigator agent and the attorney is protected by the privilege, right? That covers the client. Um, And the written notes are work product, right? So they're also theoretically covered. I think when you when it comes to something as formal as a report, um, it, even though we're just calling it a report, the idea is that like um, if you know in Massachusetts the rules of discovery require disclosure of statements of witnesses. So if you're an investigator and you've written a report that includes statements of witnesses, the defense attorney has an obligation under our rules of criminal procedure to theoretically turn that over if you've memorialized the statement. Um, And so I think the strategy, like at least the strategy that I try to use is talk to me about what the witness said before we commit anything to writing. And before we we write a reporting that says like interview with so-and-so, um, because it does mean that we have some obligations to turn that over, uh, especially if if the witness is going to be, you know, called by us. Um, right. And not something and, that's known to the prosecution. And Hal, have you, do you have a similar rule? Because I know you work in Tennessee and also Texas. How do you, how's that handled in those jurisdictions and other ones you've worked in? I've honestly never come across that, although I'm not an attorney, so I don't know what the specific rules are. Um, I do know that most of the attorneys that I work with like for me to record my conversations with the witnesses. Um, I will oftentimes get those transcribed and, and put together a packet for the attorney so that they can then review that interview um, in in a written form and and see what they want to do and what they don't want to do. Hmm. In Tennessee, working with the federal defender's office, the conversation Mm -hmm. always comes up right up front. What do we memorialize? What do we not memorialize? Because 
they're a lot more cautious about um, the long-term implications of having things written down. From my perspective, I like to have the recordings um, just because it protects me yeah. from a witness saying, you know, he offered me $500 to say X, Y, or Z. I've actually had that exact thing happen, and having the recording saved me and the attorneys. Um, but in Texas and Tennessee, I have never once seen a situation where the defense had to provide discovery of that that nature. Hmm. Hmm. That's interesting. So you, you can see the, the the big differences in jurisdictions, number one. And then uh, what about civil cases, too? Let's, I mean, we're mostly focused on, on criminal. What about civil cases? If you interview uh, witnesses, Jen, do you, on a civil case, do you want everything in writing? And do you have to turn those over typically to the other side? Um, that's a good question. Um, civil cases are a little bit different because they're sort of like not standard discovery, right? The written discovery process is what you ask for is what you get, as opposed to in the criminal context, it's governed by, at least in state court, it's governed by a rule. Um, I tend to be more okay with reports in the civil context because um, that stuff will come out in the discovery process. The discovery process is more wide ranging and frankly, yeah. the consequences aren't as significant. Right. So, um, I think we, yeah, and, with and on that, that idea too, the only times I've ever had written reports, uh, usually it's work product and it has not been turned over my, my interview with mm -hmm. a particular witness, unless the witness is going to be called uh right the other side also has an obligation to do their own investigation so sometimes the few times where i have had my report generated on a civil case it's there's been something about the witness becoming unavailable either the witness died or the mm -hmm. witness moved out of the country the other side argued that this witness is in effect unavailable yeah and my report is the only thing that exists after the incident that that's going to be pertinent to that testimony. So it's been turned over in those cases. Hal, have you had similar experiences with written reports on civil cases? So on civil cases, the attorneys that I work with every time have said, do not record conversations, do not memorialize any conversation until we speak about it. Um, <laughs> and the reason okay. is the discovery is so like, like Jen was saying, you, you write a list of interrogatories, you know, we right. want this, we want this, we want this, and they've got to turn it over. Um, and and they it, usually put, you usually put in your standard interrogatories reports of reports pertaining to, right? And it's hard yeah. to argue that a report by an investigator of a witness or, you yeah. know, isn't, isn't, you know, under the rules of criminal discovery, we're only required to turn over statements of people that we intend to call as witnesses. Okay. Um, I have had prosecutors seek discovery um, of if I have um, impeachment evidence that I've learned about of their witnesses. So I think prosecutors know that defense attorneys use investigators. And I do don't think it's it's I think they're on to us. <laughs> and I think they try to figure out ways to be creative about getting that discovery ahead of time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, 
the interesting thing, you know, and I think this really illustrates the point that as an investigator, you can be a thoroughly competent investigator, but part of competency is knowing the rules in the various jurisdictions. So if I'm up in Boston working with Jennifer and John on a case, I need to talk to Jennifer in detail about what she wants me to do and not do because those those rules are different than I'm used to dealing with. Um, and I think that's part of general competency. Yeah, I think you can see from our examples that it really does vary quite a bit, not only from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but the case type. And, um, you know, we're, I know we're running close on time, and there's one other area I'd really like to get Jen's input on, because, Hal, it's something that you and I have talked about in, in particular because investigators going out and contacting witnesses. And, Jen, you know, Rule 4.2, uh, communication with a person represented by counsel. Uh, can you explain how that pertains to an investigator talking with a witness who might be represented what they and what they should be aware of? Well, <laughs> I mean, that, you just say something to make a, an attorney's blood pressure go up, right? Because it's a big rule for attorneys that you cannot have contact with the person who is represented, right? It's, it's almost re regarded as approaching the level of cardinal sin to do that. Um, right. So I always... I always make sure um, I don't let, I wouldn't ask an investigator to go talk to somebody that I knew to be represented without checking with that person's lawyer. Um, yeah. And the, the scenario that I'm, I'm sort of steering this conversation toward is uh, I, I have had questions from people and I've had examples given in conferences where people say, well, what if you're doing an undercover investigation, mm -hmm. Some people have argued that does not apply. I think that's absolutely incorrect. It, I think it, it's, I think it's I almost think it's exactly really the thing that... And you're compromising whatever information that you might be getting from that investigation. Um, right. I mean, I can't even imagine that. Well, that, again, you're an agent. I'm sorry. An investigator is an agent of the attorney. Mm -hmm. And you're putting yourself at risk. And you're also really putting the attorney at risk um, in terms of if you get anything helpful, you won't be able to use it because the other side was going to talk about d deception being used to secure information. And you're putting yourself in a position where you're going to run afoul of the ethical rules, which most attorneys are going to be very concerned about. Right. Um, yeah. So I think that if anybody harbors any thought that that, that is not going to be that approaching somebody under a pretext in a situation where they're, they have an attorney and they're working for an attorney that they, they need to be disabused yeah. of that. that I was just concept, shaking right? his head. <laughs> yeah. I mean, here's, here's the thing. I example, I'm in Texas. I go to talk to this witness. This guy is, a, is he's in a motorcycle club, um, which is what the ATF would call a motorcycle gang. Um, yeah. this guy, when I get up to the house, his, his shirts off, he looks like a bear. He's tattooed up. He, he's just nice as he can be super nice. And we have this, I don't know, three-minute conversation where I tell him who I am, what I'm doing, mm -hmm. all this. And then about three minutes in the conversation, he goes, well, my lawyer says so-and-so. And I'm like, I'm going to stop this interview. Yeah. And I went back to, I said, I'm, he, he wanted to keep talking. I said, no, 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 no. Yeah. Be quiet. I went back to the car, called the attorney, and we got his attorney on the phone mm -hmm. and, and dealt with it right then. And it, it, it yeah. became a real sticky thing between the attorneys but we didn't know he was represented. 
Right. And that's the other thing too. I think like, you know, frankly, as an investigator and even as an attorney, if you think that there's an inkling that the person might be represented, it's really not that difficult to confirm that information. Right. Um, and the first question could maybe be, oh, do you have a lawyer? And it doesn't even have to be a lawyer if, the, if it pertains to that case. If the person is represented, due diligence, right? I think best practices would require the attorney to communicate with the other attorney or even the investigator to communicate with the attorney because I know how I would feel if somebody tried to interview my client without mm -hmm. telling me. <laughs> I'd yeah, be very abso upset. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I mean, and, and you know, I had a I had a person that was coming out of the federal uh, probation office that wanted to be a private investigator, and they said, "Well, I can go to this um, hair salon and pretend to be a client and get information." But I'm like, no, 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 that's yeah. not okay. I mean, I when. Uh, especially in the criminal defense world, and that's where I live, mm -hmm. I want to tell the witness who I am, what I'm doing, what attorney I'm working for, and who they represent. And I want to get that out up front. I want to be very clear when I say I'm a private investigator. I don't want them to misunderstand that at all. Oftentimes, um, witnesses will misunderstand that even despite your best efforts to make sure that you're being clear about who you are. I mean, yeah. I think you've probably both been in situations where it got reported back to the prosecutor that some PI said X, Y, and Z, or some cop or somebody showed up to talk to them. Yeah. Just because I think if people are not familiar, if they're not living in the criminal um, legal context, they they really can't remember. And yeah, right. they might, they very, might be on the scene. But it behooves you as an investigator to be explicitly clear and direct about your position. Yeah, yeah, and we even went went as far on on one case where this was this was a toxic dumping case in California years ago, and this was coming up so often that we just had business cards printed with something on the back that we were representing. It was Lockheed Martin in that case, just because we we're so tired of these these sort of silly attempts to undermine. Yeah. very helpful interviews and they would always come in and say well they they said that they were working for lockheed uh or, or right. i'm sorry working for another company and we we made it clear yeah. who we were working for by printing it on the back of the business card yeah you know so. for, for for those of us that live in the criminal defense and then in, in civil law world by and large we know what our attorneys expect from us we know what they, they want from us for folks that that do um I mean, there, there are times when an undercover investigation is totally okay and necessary and above board and all those things. But I think most of us in the PI world are going to be working for an attorney and we're going to be representing that attorney in a specific case. And we've got to be really careful because if I step outside the bounds of Jennifer's ethical, you know, parameters, mm -hmm. I, like she said, not only do I get myself in trouble, that's not the real issue. I'm going to get her in trouble. Right. Yeah. Right. And I think that's kind of maybe the final thing to t for everyone to take away is just keep that communication open on these cases because you have to look at the jurisdiction. You have to look at the rules, the type of case. And any if you do run afoul of a situation where you are talking with a witness, communicate right away with your lawyer, get the other lawyer on the phone and straighten it out right there don't don't uh don't let that interview go <laughs> beyond and i would say try to have these conversations with the attorney up front i mean yes. i think probably yeah. some some attorneys um 
either I think some very experienced ones and, and especially some inexperienced attorneys may not exactly know how to use investigators. So I think it would be it's beneficial for you as an investigator to ask more questions and make sure that the parameters of the assignment are very clear to both sides rather than thinking, oh, the attorney wants me to do X and then going over a line that you you may not have even have been aware of. Yeah. Um, and, and look, it falls in the scope of work, right. defining, defining the scope of work up front and the parameters. And look, guys, we all know this. There are attorneys out there that will ask an investigator to do something that they know is wrong, that they know is you know right. against their ethical code, that is quite possibly illegal. Mm-hmm. As investigators, we've got to pay attention to those things too. But I think we just came up with the topic for our next podcast with Jennifer, which is attorneys, how do you use an investigator? Oh yeah, that's a good, <laughs> that's, a, that's a great topic actually. All right. Well, this was great, Jen. I really appreciate you taking time after your busy day in court and answering some of these very practical and very, very, very important questions for investigators to know, because there's a lot of mistakes made, I think, in this area. And uh, the damage that can be done to not only the lawyer, but also the investigator and the client, it's severe. So I I hope everybody takes something away from this discussion. Hal, any uh, any thoughts about next week besides that great topic you just raised? I think we're going to have to give Jennifer, Jennifer a little bit of time to, to, <laughs> to come back to another podcast. Um, but, right. you know, um, next week will be next week. I, I know, you know, Jennifer, John and I had a call from a from a young lady in, in um, Kentucky who is looking at getting into the PI world. So we're going to try and get her onto a podcast and just let her ask us questions. Um, about what it's like to be a private investigator and what it takes to be a private investigator. So maybe we'll get to that next week. Um, Jennifer, thank you so very much for taking the time to do this. Uh, It's a pleasure to meet you. Um, And anytime we can have an attorney on board to kind of give us their thoughts on what we do, I think it's really useful. Thanks for having me. I really appreciated being on on a podcast to end today. I love it. Um, (laughs) Any last, any last words, John? I think that's it, Hal. We look forward to uh, launching this again next week. All right. I'm going to switch over here and take us out of here. I'm Hal Humphreys. That is the sound of pursuit. Now let's have a quick shout out to one of our sponsors. Actually, two of our sponsors. Mm-hmm.